Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. I'm your host, Ewan Laidlaw, an equine vet in Northumberland, and today I'll be joined by Helen Braid to talk about her article in EVE entitled A Cross-Sectional Survey of the Diagnosis and Treatment of Distal Limb Cellulitis in horses by veterinary surgeons in the UK. Helen's a veterinary surgeon and graduated from the Royal Veterinary College in 2013, having undertaken a bachelor's degree in microbiology and zoology before at the University of Liverpool. She's currently a lecturer in equine practice and joined the first opinion ambulatory equine veterinary team at Leehurst Equine Practice in February 2018. Helen has a certificate in advanced veterinary practice in equine medicine and has interest in all aspects of equine medicine, but particularly infectious disease, cellulitis, very apt, neurology and laminitis. And outside of work, um, she obtained her second Dan black belt in Japanese jiu-jitsu in June 2018 and is an assistant chief instructor at her club, where she coaches on most Saturdays. She's also a keen swimmer, having completed a, a relay swim across the English Channel in 2013 and multiple other open water events. Helen's one of the senior tutors at Leehurst and is dedicated to the pastoral care of the students on campus. That's something that we might, um, might talk about that again at the end, Helen, if that's possible. No problem at all. Um, the, so the article, uh, a cross-sectional survey of the diagnosis and treatment of distal limb cellulitis, what um, inspired you to, to research this topic, Helen? Um, it was actually something that came to me when I was studying for my certificate. Um, as part of one of the C modules, um, they asked a question. It was a short answer question on how you would differentiate between cellulitis and lymphangitis. Um, and it was at that point that I realised how little literature there is on the topic and that remained a bit of an interest and then um, when I started at Leehurst and started delving into the world of academia and research um, and started doing my master's I decided to take it a bit further and actually look into it. Excellent, Um, let's take that point then about cellulitis and lymphangitis and the distinction between them and I think it might be useful to first to all as are both you and I and our listeners to set in our mind what, what is cellulitis? How, how would you define it, Helen? Ah, that's a good question. So cellulitis is defined as a diffuse bacterial infection of inflammation of the deep dermis and subcutaneous tissues. And interestingly, in humans, they distinguish cellulitis into deep cellulitis and superficial cellulitis. And they sometimes call superficial cellulitis erysipelas, which is not related to the erysipelas in pigs that we know of. Um, that's caused by erysipelathrix. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting definition. And in horses, we we have taken that definition, um, but we don't seem to distinguish whether it's deep or superficial to the same extent as humans. Just give us a short definition again, Helen, just so people listening can fix it in their head. (laughs) It's a diffuse bacterial infection and inflammation of the deep dermis and subcutaneous tissues. Grand, thank you. I need that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And 
let, well, let's talk about the diagnosis of cellulitis because that's something that you you looked at in your article. How do we generally diagnose it? Uh, via clinical examination alone in the vast majority of cases Um, and this is actually the same in humans I found that in the comparative literature review it's diagnosed by clinical signs alone in humans because in humans they often find that additional diagnostics um, trying to attempt cultures and biopsies for example are actually very unrewarding they don't tend to get a result in most cases. And one of the clinical signs is edema. Yes. I personally find, in some cases, cellulitis. I'm not, for all I, I detect diffuse limb swelling. I don't necessarily find pitting edema. Um, I wonder if I'm not pressing hard enough because when I do press on the limb, the horse wants to kick me in the head. Is, is that yeah. something that came up or, or not really? Am I... Am I weird I, I, I wouldn't say you were weird that'd be rude um I think edema is a really really classical symptom of it um in both horses and in humans but I agree these these animals are often incredibly painful on palpation and I think for pitting edema you really do have to press quite hard um and they often are so painful that that's that that's rendered impossible and in fact sometimes if I've been out on yard with with students I actually won't allow the students to do it just because the poor horse is that painful I think it's a bit mean um but it, it could just be that the pain on palpation is prohibiting you from feeling the edema or it could be in some cases that we don't actually see it the literature is quite sparse particularly on first opinion cases um so it may be that actually some cases in horses we don't see the classical pattern of edema or perhaps the owners caught it very early and if you were to give it more time the edema may then develop and become more apparent what other differentials would you say that vets should be considering or what differentials are they considering um, when edema is present? Um, well, we could hark back to our uh, favourite physiology lectures at vet school and think about our four mechanisms of edema, couldn't we? And I think we can rule out a fair few of those based on the fact that it usually presents in one limb or one particular area of the body. My study focused on the distal limb, but we can get cellulitis elsewhere in the body. Um, but assuming it's a single limb, we can probably rule out decreased colloid oncotic pressure. Um, we can probably rule out increased capillary hydrostatic pressure. Um, and that leaves us with increased capillary permeability and lymphatic obstruction as our main mechanisms. So you'd be considering anything that could cause those things so essentially anything that can cause severe inflammation um, or anything that could cause lymph node obstruction Um, and in that then we can consider things like fractures have got to be a differential it's usually more localized swelling but in the early stages it you know it it could present fairly diffusely um, and in the later stages indeed it could if gravity gets involved Um, other trauma Joint infections can sometimes masquerade as cellulitis, um, and they would be the the major differentials after lymphangitis if we're going to go down that road. That's an amazingly thorough answer, Helen. Well, Sorry. It's a long time since since I was in physiology. Um, good on you. <laughs> Fair play. I think it's a long time since any of us did physiology. <laughs> Let's go back to your study as such um what what was the the study design please 
Um, it was a cross-sectional survey and it was an online survey. I distributed it via email to practices listed as treating horses and via um, some social media groups. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to mention them. <laughs> but yeah, the you can, I. Can. Uh, fair enough. Um, Vet Voices Equine was one and Vet Voices UK. Um, and I think there was Equine Vets UK as well, a couple of different Facebook groups. And it was a survey that was open for three months between December 2019 and March 2020. And... It involved a clinical scenario, is that right? It did, yes. The clinical scenario was um, listed in the supplementary information, but I can read it out for you if you like. Please. So the clinical scenario essentially um, was a seven-year-old warm blood gelding presents with a history of swelling of the right hind limb of roughly 24 hours duration. The gelding sustained a small five millimeter shallow laceration over the dorsal aspect of the mid cannon region 72 hours ago, which appears to be dry, non-exudative and healing well. The limb is diffusely swollen from the pastern to above the hock with pitting edema and pain on palpation of the skin. The gelding is six tenths lame at walk. There's no palpable crepitus or evident fracture, no evident synovial involvement and no history of any other trauma. The other three legs appear normal. The gelding is eating, drinking, defecating and urinating normally. Clinical parameters are heart rate 48 beats per minute, respiratory rate 12 breaths per minute and temperature 38.2 degrees Celsius. From this history and clinical examination, limb cellulitis is suspected. The horse weighs 500 kilos. Cool. Did you... The only thing that I pick out of that is 38.2. That's mm. top end of normal, I would have thought, especially if it was in the morning. Yes, it is top end of normal. And I did that because um, I find... And, and this may be completely anecdotal, and again, it, it could have opened up the questionnaire to some bias but I don't always find that cellulitis cases are pyrexic particularly in the early stages um, and I think that it's not necessarily a consistent clinical finding but that may just be my personal and incorrect experience. No uh, well, yeah personal experience I, I don't know if I'd if it was eating I don't know if I'd have taken its temperature I'd probably have decided that it had cellulitis based on its clinical signs I think the vast majority of vets would have done the same thing yeah um which is why I, I another reason why I chose it to be kind of top end of normal rather than an obvious pyrexia because the other thing is with an obvious pyrexia um I didn't want vets to go down the route of trying to investigate a pyrexia of unknown origin in their responses because I was trying to get them to focus on on their cellulitis fair enough um what when was that survey conducted and was the the tailgate stable lab serum amyloid A test available at that time? That's a very good question. The study was December 2019 to March 2020, and I honestly can't remember when the stable side test became available. Um, certainly, I think only five people only five respondents out of the whole 268 actually took an SAA so even if it was available it, it may not have been widely available to our respondents at the time right that's interesting that's about the only thing that I might have done mm. um thinking personally um 
probably wouldn't have. But if I was in doubt as to whether it was cellulitis or, um, let's say, um, soft tissue tendon type lesion, um, then that's how I might have I might have used that in terms of diagnostic testing to try and differentiate between the two. But, yeah, it's yeah. it's an interesting one, SAA actually, and I I do it's one of my sort of ideas for future research, I suppose, because particularly now with the advent of the stable side measurement, because um, it's not really been studied at all in cellulitis, but in respiratory disease, it has been shown that in infectious respiratory disease, be it bacterial or viral, the SAA will be higher than if it's inflammatory. Um, and, you know, we all know that in um, synovial sepsis, it can be quite a useful marker as well. So I think it's probably something that needs a bit more investigation for cellulitis. Just on the on the topic of, of synovial involvement there, Helen, I'm often reluctant to tap a, a joint or a tendon sheath if I'm suspicious of cellulitis because I, I, I'm worried about putting a needle through back, uh, tissue which contains bacteria. Um, I perceive cellulitis to be bacterial as I think most of your respondents do. Um, was that Were you able to glean from your study whether or not that was a consideration um, that vets were were worth thinking about in the diagnosis of of cellulitis versus synovial infection. Um, good question. I didn't specifically ask that question, and some respondents did indeed consider synovial sepsis as a differential. Um, and I'm I agree with you. I'm very very reluctant to tap a joint if I suspect cellulitis. To be quite frank, I'm I'm a more of a medicine person so I'm reluctant to tap a joint at the best of times um but certainly not in the presence of cellulitis and I think I, I did find a reference to it in Dave Rendell's article in 2017 and um he seemed to say that it he thought it was fairly low risk particularly if intraarticular antimicrobials are injected at the same time however um it did also mention that perhaps ultrasound scanning would be more appropriate to determine if there was an evident joint effusion. Um, and I personally would be more likely to go down that route than I would be to start um, sticking needles in, in a cellulitic leg. And I think a lot of these cases can be very frustrating in first opinion practice. I'm very much a first opinion vet. I've been there myself when I've looked at something, the wounds in a very suspicious location, the legs blown up. And I just think, oh dear, I, you know, I don't know whether this is septic or not. And I think a lot of vets in that situation will opt for referral. And I don't think that's the wrong decision. Um, and certainly looking at the studies that I included in my literature review, quite a few of those cases were indeed referred in for suspected synovial sepsis that turned out to be cellulitis. Um, so I think it is it is something that we struggle with out, out in first opinion. And I'm not necessarily sure that there's a right or wrong answer with what to do with those cases. To reading your article, um, I wondered if ultrasound is something that I should maybe be considering more readily than I, I do. And is that, we we're talking about earlier, cellulitis versus lymphangitis briefly, is that something which, you, which according to your study is useful in trying to differentiate between the two? It can be. Um, some Not very many people were using it initially, actually. A, a fair few people were using it if there was no clinical improvement, but very few vets were actually using it initially. And I personally 
I, I don't actually use it initially. Maybe I should, but I don't. And one of those reasons is that these horses are usually so painful that I just think that ultrasound might actually be incredibly difficult or even contraindicated for welfare reasons, unless you genuinely think that there's clinical need for it. Um, because the, the poor things are so painful on palpation that I think that sticking an ultrasound probe on them can be incredibly uncomfortable. Um, and in terms of differentiating cellulitis from lymphangitis, yes, the, there does seem to be a suggestion that ultrasound will help there because it might help you identify distended lymphatics that might not otherwise have been visible. Um, but one of the other limitations of my study was that I didn't actually ask people whether they would treat lymphangitis any differently from cellulitis. Um, I personally suspect perhaps not. So you can kind of call into question, is it necessary to differentiate the two or actually do we treat them the same way anyway? You took the words out of my mouth there. That's just what I was thinking. I, I personally don't think that I think it would be about academic and, and the initial phase whether I think it's cellulitis or lymphangitis, because I'm probably going to give it the same drugs regardless. Um, yeah. So does that make a massive difference? And and then I was thinking about, well, it, then I wonder whether or not you're using ultrasound to try and diagnose or detect a joint effusion. Would, should, should, I was wondering, should I be doing that initially? Um rather than waiting i see that i can see arguments either way because if if you ignore a synovial sepsis and and that goes to 24 or, or 72 hours then it's my understanding that the prognosis of a, a successful treatment of that synovial sepsis is diminished at those points um which would suggest you should ultrasound and confirm that earlier um i suppose that's a bit of a tricky one isn't it it is really hard because I think a lot of these cases are associated with a wound. And if the wound is in an obvious synovial location, I think that um, it gives you more justification for considering ultrasound. But I personally find the trickier cases are those ones where there's no wound at all. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no synovial sepsis, because if it was a penetrating injury, you may not actually see a, a very small puncture wound, particularly in um, certain demographics. I mean, my demographic, I, I, I love the horses that I treat, but a lot of them are black and white and hairy. Um, and so you may not necessarily actually find the, the wound that caused the problem. Um, so it is a really tricky one. And I, again, I think... Um, this is where some vets in first opinion end up referring these cases because of that, because they feel that it's too risky to to not send them in to double check. Um, but in general, most cellulitis cases do respond very rapidly to therapy. So I suppose if, for example, if finances were seriously restrictive and referral wasn't an option for the client, then trialing therapy, you should see a response within within a couple of days. And that would give you more of an indication. Yeah, I think I think you've summarised that quite eloquently. Um, moving on a bit from there, um, your study found a bit of seasonality. Is that is that true? Um, that was an interesting one, actually. Um, and I did look into this in a bit more detail. Um, but uh, it didn't actually end up the getting included in the publication. Um, I did find the the seasonality was roughly 50-50, 49.6% um, seasonal and 51.4% non, so it, it, it's 50-50. Um, Sorry, just going, just going back there, Helen, so, so that was 
49% of respondents thought or, or had the impression that, that cellulitis was seasonal, i.e. more common in the wetter months. Correct, yes. And so, so this your study wasn't based on on data as such and that it was based on the impressions um, of the vets that responded? Correct, yes. Um, it didn't ask for cases um, documented by people. It was purely vets' responses, so it was relying on vet recollection of when they saw the most cases. Sure. Is that is that an area that you think would be useful for further research? or? It could be. The interesting thing about it was that... Um, People in the northwest of England and in Scotland did seem to be more likely to suggest that it was non-seasonal. And I actually looked into the local climate and the weather patterns in those regions. Being from the northwest and living in the northwest, I'm a diehard Mancunian. And as you know, Mancunians don't ever shut, about, shut up about how much it rains. Um, so I wondered whether vets in the colder, wetter areas would consider it non-seasonal. Exactly. Yeah, because <laughs> it's, it's, it's always raining and it's always wet and they've always got mud fever. Um, but that, you know, that didn't seem to stand up to um, the explanation for Wales and Northern Ireland, because they had a respondents from Wales and Northern Ireland had an equal division in whether they thought it was seasonal or not. And they seem to have the same or if not more rainfall than the Northwest and Scotland. So it didn't quite add up. However, I did have much fewer respondents from um, Wales and Northern Ireland. So I don't know whether it was a, a numbers game or or what. I, I think it, it could be worth looking into, but I'm not sure um, of how much help it would be because I'm not sure whether knowing it's seasonal or not would really change necessarily how we manage it at the time. Hi. I know. I think it was just it was an interesting point, and I wonder if ground conditions makes a difference. Mm. Um, if you're on posh, nice land versus rough, rough, um, boggy holes. Yeah, um, I think it. You can, we can kind of assume, can't we, that if rug bo- boggy holes make make it more likely for them to develop things like pass and dermatitis or mud fever, however people call it. In theory, if wounds predisposed to cellulitis and breaks in the skin predisposed to it you would see more cases in those months which is where I was going when I asked that question and I was actually surprised that that came back as 50 50 I was expecting that to be a yes but I think that's probably biased by me living in the northwest Mm -hmm. yeah moving on from that Helen um I think one of the one of my questions when I saw this paper and, and hopefully one that a lot of people tuning into the podcast will be anxious to to get thoughts on um, is treatment and for me the big question is is corticosteroids or not what did your survey say oh survey said unsure on that one um only 41 percent of vets were using uh steroids at the at the time and um i tried to look into this in in more detail and in in humans there is not very much evidence at all that steroids actually help. And in fact, there, there was one study that found absolutely no difference whatsoever between steroid and placebo groups in the treatment of cellulitis. I couldn't find many references to it in the equine literature. Um, Sue Dyson mentioned it in her textbook in 2003 um, and stated that steroids can reduce chronic limb swelling, but there was no reference associated with that statement that I could find. So I'm not sure that there's very much evidence for steroids um 
and I think it's very vet dependent on whether they choose to use them. I mean, I personally, I don't tend to use them at the first instance, but like my survey found, I do tend to use them if I don't get a treatment response. It is something that I consider adding in. Anecdotally, that's what I do as well. Uh, and I sometimes even plan to use steroids um, in day four and five or six of treatment. Um, and being an ambulatory practitioner, whether I treat for five days or, or six days or seven, um, is dependent on when the weekend falls as well. Um, yeah, and what antibiotics you've got in the car. <laughs> <laughs> of, course not, of course not. None of a consideration. Um, and uh, thing about steroid, one thing I picked out about your in your study um, about corticosteroid use was that, correct me if I'm wrong, more equine-only vets compared with mixed practitioners used steroids, and it was the same with topical treatment. It was. Yeah, that's correct. And um, again, yet another limitation I'm kicking myself for is I I didn't really ask for a rationale behind that. And and because the survey was completely anonymous, it's not it's not possible to get any kind of follow up data. Um, So I don't know whether that's an anecdotal thing that equine vets talk about and therefore equine vets are more aware of than mixed vets, whether it's uh, a car stock thing whether there's there's more availability of certain products in equine vet cars or mixed vet cars um the the topical treatment was an interesting one actually because as part of the clinical scenario i did state that the gelding had a wound it was a five millimeter small laceration and i said it was non-exudative and healing well um it could just be that the mixed vets trusted that that was healing well and didn't need any more topical treatment compared to the equine vets who felt that horses perhaps are less trustworthy um, and may require a, a barrier cream of some sort or an antimicrobial cream. I honestly don't know what the what the reasoning was behind those responses. This might be another question that you don't have the rationale for, but if you, maybe you can hypothesise. Um, some people suggested box rest. That's... Was I wondered is that because they were worried in case the horse had a broken leg? Um, I wouldn't generally think about suggesting box rest in a horse that was cellulitic. I'd be keen to try and get it moving. I think so, yeah. And um, actually, only seven people overall said that they would recommend box rest for the entire duration. The majority of people who were suggesting box rest were suggesting box rest until the horse was comfortable enough for turnout or light exercise. And I assume that to be, I think we've all been to some cases, particularly hind limbs, I find where the poor horse can barely move. The poor thing's standing there with an enormous swollen leg, sweating, looking really, really sorry for itself. And I think a lot of us are a bit worried that if that horse slipped or fell over in the field, it had really struggle to get up and I have actually ended up in a situation before personally where I um, had a horse with severe cellulitis of the hind limb and it lay down in the field and and couldn't get up and I then spent two hours the following day trying to get it to stand it did eventually thankfully Um, but I do wonder if it's a worry about that or whether that kind of little voice in the back of your mind that says oh what if this is a fracture I should box rest it just in case until it responds to the anti-inflammatories and starts feeling a bit better that was seven out of 200 and... 267 who answered that question. Seven out of 267, so 2.6%. Not very many. 
Mm. Um, can we talk about antibiotics, please? Um, I've, I I currently have a issue with, and have done for a wee while of getting injectable trimethoprim sulfonamide in the UK, and I wondered if that was the case when this this survey was carried out. It wasn't the case at the time. Um, we can't get it in at the moment either. I I don't know when that's been occurring. Um, since, but at the, at the time of the study, TMPS was available. I don't think the intramuscular form was available because I think that went off the market with the excipient that was in Flinixin as well. I can't pronounce it, but I'm sure everyone remembers um, back in, I think that was August 2018, wasn't it? But um, yeah, injectable TMPS was available, but interestingly, not very many vets who were prescribing oral TMPS were actually injecting TMPS at the time. Um, I think only um, around, I think it was 32 out of 185 vets who were using TMPS. So that was 17.3% of the vets who were using oral TMPS injected IV TMPS at the time. And even more interestingly, um, less than 50% of them were using it as per the data sheet dosage. In fact, 50% of them were using it at a lower dose than that stated on the data sheet and 12.5% were using it at a higher dose. So I'm not really sure it was all that useful anyway. Um, and the other thing about TMPS is at the time of the study, the Beaver Protect Me toolkit listed TMPS as a suggested antimicrobial for cellulitis, whereas in November 2020, that was updated to state doxycycline as a recommended antimicrobial for cellulitis. And I know that it's a toolkit and is therefore editable by practices. So within practices, that might have been different, but that could perhaps reflect um, differently if we were to repeat the study again. Now, I do wonder if more vets would be using oral doxycycline and injecting oxytetracycline prior to that. Would that be your recommendation of antimicrobial therapy based on what you've, well, your personal knowledge and, and your survey? Uh, yes, it would actually. I, I like doxycycline. Um, it has its limitations. It's off license. So we do need off license consent. Um, and the um, doxycycline hyacolate formulation, there's a couple of different brands um, that we're familiar with it can cause oral ulceration because it's acidic but I find that that's mediated quite easily if you mix it in with feed and I know that there are um, sort of the compounded formulations I know I think there's a toffee flavored one that's quite well reviewed that horses eat quite well um, but doxy it works pretty quickly um, the time to MIC following oral administration has been measured to be less than two hours in one particular study. Um, and I find that injecting Oxitet at the time of visit, whether it actually provides some more rapid assistance to the horse, I'm honestly not sure, but it certainly makes the owners feel better. And that's not a justification for using antimicrobials, but I think that um, it, it does help to get to get things in quickly and, and doxy there are a couple of studies that show it does have its own anti-inflammatory properties in lung tissue so if those properties extend to um, other areas of the body then it, it can potentially be very beneficial that's interesting if doxy gets to work in two hours i wonder if it's, is it worthwhile giving the oxytet into the vein and um, if doxy orally works in two hours time 
Yeah, it's an interesting one, actually. Um, if I, I, I honestly don't always use injectable oxytet at the same time because of that reason. Um, I tend to only use injectable oxytet if the horse is profoundly unwell, not eating because it's pyrexic and I'm worried that the owner is going to struggle to get the doxycycline down it in the initial stages. They're usually the ones that I choose to inject initially. But if the horse is otherwise well and eating well, then I don't tend to inject them. Fair, fair comment. Um, one of the, the things that puts me off using doxy is, you know, I, I perceive that there's a risk of colitis. Is that something that I should worry about, in your opinion? Um, I think the risk of antimicrobial injury colitis, it, it is there um, with doxycycline. I, it is mentioned in the literature. But, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I anecdotally have never seen a case, touch wood, of doxycycline-induced colitis. And from what I've heard, a lot of the cases are where it was either overdosed or the horse was mistakenly given a double dose, for example. Um, and I use it an awful lot. I probably use it at least as often as um, TMPS, the licensed formulation. Um, and I have yet to see a colitis case from it. And just on that topic, I'm just checking your paper. Um, what what dose do you use? Orodoxia at 10 mg per kg every 12 hours, is that right? Correct. There we go. 10 mg per kg every 12 hours. Sorry, that was the dosage that everyone was using, it seemed as well. It was incredibly consistent, the dosage of doxycycline. Okie dokie. So 10 mg per kg every 12 hours if someone's driving around trying to note that down. Yep, 10 mg per kg every 12 hours. Um, any further study recommendations that, you know, your study identified a gap in the literature and, and as we've, you know, as we've discussed, there, there are some things which you maybe wish you'd done differently or, or scope for the future. Where, where do you think um, research should go next on, on the topic of cellulitis? I think we need to try and figure out um, how to confirm that these cases are bacterial, because although the vast majority of us suspect they are, myself included, um, in humans, there are other causes. There are viral causes, blunt trauma can cause it. And I do wonder if, given that the majority of vets are diagnosing on clinical signs alone and the vast majority are prescribing NSAIDs and antimicrobials based on clinical signs alone, there is potential for antimicrobial resistance here if we're treating um, a non-existent infection. So some kind of method of, of determining whether it's bacterial would be great, but um, that's very easy, very easy to say and not very easy to do at all so some kind of snap test or stable side test would be would be excellent but again that then relies on us being able to actually obtain samples and as we know from the literature the the success at obtaining samples to culture is very mixed some some studies seem to have done very well at it others haven't um, the other avenue is to look at SAA. We, we discussed that earlier, but to look at SAA as a marker of whether it's infectious or inflammatory, because it does tend to be higher in infectious disease in, in other body systems. So that would be quite an interesting avenue. 
Um, and it would be interesting to look into how they treat it in other countries, particularly countries where antimicrobials are only available following culture and sensitivity. Given the difficulty obtaining a sample for culture and sensitivity in these cases, it would be very interesting to see how they're treating them um, in other countries where antimicrobials are more difficult to get hold of. That's a great link to my next question. This is a UK-based article. As I've I've worked briefly in Australia, but not for that long. Um, do, is cellulitis something that we see in other parts of the world? Did your your literature review throw that up? Um, not specifically. It it is documented in other areas of the world. Um, and it, we can swing back to the lymphangitis debate here as well, because there's other types of lymphangitis that seem to be seen in other areas of the world, epizootic lymphangitis and ulcerative lymphangitis, for example, which aren't really seen in the UK. Um, and they're, they're frequently mentioned in the literature. So I think it is an avenue of further research to see how often this is seen in other areas of the world. It may even be able to allow us to bring in the seasonality debate again, because I think to myself, well, if it's seasonal and related to wet weather, will we see these cases in more arid regions or hotter regions, for example, um, and to see how vets in other countries treat these cases? Because, yes, UK vets are doing it this way, but does that necessarily mean that that's the right way? We honestly don't know. Hmm. Helen, thank you very much for um doing you know doing the article in the first place and for agreeing to join us for the equine veterinary education podcast you're very welcome take care you too. Bye, everyone. thank you for listening to this equine veterinary education podcast more on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e